0: Welcome to your most obedient and humble servant. This is a women's history podcast where we feature 18th and early 19th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. I'm your host, Catherine Garrett. Welcome to week three of my multi-part series on Martha Washington's in-laws. In our last episode, we discussed William Byrd II, and a lot of fart jokes, frankly. This week, we're going to discuss the death of Daniel Park. So that is Martha Washington's first husband's grandfather. We have talked about Park in our very first episode. Uh, He was something of a slashing blade of a gentleman. And where we left off with him, it was 1706. He had been granted the governorship of Antigua in the Leeward Islands. By all accounts, this was supposed to be a comfy post. It was supposed to make him a lot of money. It was fairly prestigious. The fact that he had this post and also presumably loved his daughters, uh, was why his daughters were able to attract such well-to-do husbands. This episode, we're going to find out what happened in the Leeward Islands. The document that I'm going to read for this episode is not actually a letter. It's a newspaper article, but the article does include the full text of a letter from the Duke of Marlborough to the Duchess of Marlborough. So if you're really hankering for some uh, women's correspondence, we've got you covered. And heads up, before I read this, this article includes descriptions of violence that might be particularly jarring for people with penises. So, heads up. The Political State of Great Britain, being an impartial account of the most material occurrences ecclesiastical, civil, and military, in a monthly letter to a friend in Holland. January 1710-1711. through 1711. The Tragical End of Colonel Park, Governor of the Leeward Islands. A merchant of this city received the news of the most tragical end of Colonel Daniel Park, Governor of the Leeward Islands, concerning whom I have procured the following account. He was the son of a tobacco planter in Virginia, who, when he was but fifteen, married him to a great fortune in that country, though about ten years older. However, he had two daughters by his wife, but having taken a disgust to her, by that time he had reached five and twenty, he left her in Virginia, came over to England, and falling in love with the wife of a gentleman of the lifeguards, got her from her husband and entertained her as his mistress. He afterwards took her along with him to Virginia, where having stayed two or three years to settle his affairs, he came back to England with his mistress, still leaving his wife behind him. Upon his return hither, he drove the tobacco trade, having ships of his own for that purpose, the taking of one of which was the occasion of the condemnation of twenty-four pirates, thirteen of whom were executed, and the rest pardoned. Having bought an estate of about five or six hundred pounds a year near Whitchurch in Hampshire, he stood for parliament man of that corporation and, for a good sum of money, carried the election. But a petition being put up, and the notorious bribery proved upon him, he was expelled the house and ordered to be prosecuted. However, he was protected by the Earl of P, his friend, who warded off the prosecution. Sometime after, he went over to Flanders, made a campaign as a volunteer, and having been recommended to the Duke of Marlborough, attended his grace in the quality of one of his aides-de-camp in the ever-famous Campaign of Germany in the year 1704. But upon a quarrel with the colonel in the Queen's Guards, he thought fit to quit the service, and so took leave of his grace a day or two before the Battle of Blenheim, yet continued in the camp till it was fought. By reason, there was a very probable expectation of a sudden action. Upon the very nick of time, when victory began to declare for the Allies, he told my lord Duke he was just upon his departure for England and humbly desired his grace to favor him with a line or two to acquaint the queen with that glorious action. His request was readily granted, and thereupon his grace wrote on horseback with a leaden pencil the following note to his duchess. August 13th, 1704. I have not time to say more than to beg of you to present my duty to the Queen, and to let Her Majesty know that her army has had a glorious victory. Monsieur Tillard and two other generals are in my coach, and I am following the rest. The bearer, my aide-de-camp Colonel Park, will give Her Majesty an account of what has passed. I shall do it in a day or two, more at large. Marlborough. With this note, the colonel rode away post, but had the prudence to take in his way several courts of Germany, where he received considerable presents such as large gold medals and chains, and having with great diligence reached for the Brill, hired a fisher boat to carry him over to England, so that he had the happiness to be the first that brought the queen that joyful news, being introduced by the Duchess of Marlborough, and was, by her majesty, presented with a thousand guineas, and her picture set in gold." From this time the colonel was very assiduous at court, and the government of the Leeward Islands being vacant by the death of Sir William Matthews, he was preferred to it by the interest of the Duke of Marlborough, who was ever very kind and generous to those about him. He continued in England about a year after his advancement to that post, and having put to sea in April 1706, Touched at the Isle of Madaras, where he was nobly received and entertained both by the governor and all the superiors of the monasteries. and 'tis remarkable that several of the Franciscan monks paid so great a veneration to the queen's picture, which the colonel always carried hanging in his waistcoat, that they kneeled down before it and kissed it. From Madeiras, the colonel proceeded on his voyage to his government, where the inhabitants soon found a vast difference between their late and present governor. For Sir William Matthews, being a person of an easy temper, good morals, and integrity, amicably composed such differences as arose among the inhabitants of the Leeward Islands, and contented himself with the just income and emoluments of his place, which, however, were much increased to him by the voluntary gifts of the rich planters, who loved and respected him as their common father." On the contrary, Colonel Park, being of a proud, surly, imperious, and rapacious nature, and ill morals, fomented divisions by which he thought he might be a gainer, arbitrarily confiscated the goods and slaves of several inhabitants, and committed other excesses to gratify his voluptuousness. Which, in a short time, drew upon him the general hatred of the people under him. The Council and Assembly of Antigua endeavored to reclaim him by a wholesome advice, and humble representations, but these proving ineffectual, they sent hither their complaints about two years ago. The Earl of Sunderland, then Secretary of State, having laid the matter before the Queen and Council, Her Majesty ordered him to be recalled, but he refused to comply either with the Queen's command or the repeated desires of the inhabitants of those islands, saying he would never part with his commission, but with his life. Hereupon the principal planters encouraged by Mr. Pigeot Mr. Jarvis, Mr. Turton, and Mr. Young resolved to rid themselves of their petty tyrant, of which Colonel Park, having either an information or suspicion, and being under a just apprehension of being sacrificed, settled his worldly affairs, received the sacrament, and trebled his ordinary guard. Notwithstanding this precaution, on the ninth of December 1710, the inhabitants of Antigua rose by common consent, came in all well-armed, and dividing themselves into two parties under the command of Captain Pigeot and Captain Painter, marched to the colonel's house, threatening to kill him unless he would immediately surrender his commission, according to the queen's command. The colonel, refusing to comply, they attacked and forced his guard, entered his house, broke open his chamber door, and shot him. After which they broke his backbone, dragged him by the heels down the stairs, shot him again in several places, and some, whose marriage bed tis thought he had defiled, revenged themselves on the sinning parts which they cut off and exposed. The colonel's guards, having made great resistance, about thirty men were killed, and as many wounded on both sides, and among the first, Captain Pigot, one of the leaders of the inhabitants, was shot by Captain Aon, who stood by Colonel Park. It is to be wished that the tragical end of this gentleman may be a warning to all governors of our American plantations not to abuse the large power with which they are entrusted, but rather to follow the example of Sir Will Matthews, his predecessor, whose name and memory are still reverenced by the inhabitants of the Leeward Islands. About the beginning of April, the Queen appointed Walter Douglas Esquire to succeed Colonel Park in that government. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> ah, yeah, when I found this document, I was <laughs> thrilled I had been trying to find out what was going on with Martha Washington and her ancestry, and I saw something about Daniel Park, and I kept seeing these sort of little short mentions of Daniel Park as something of a cad. Basically, I found a reference to Daniel Park, and it was just your average encyclopedia entry trying to be very dry, trying to be very balanced. And then right at the end, it said he was murdered by a mob in the Leeward Islands, which... To me, I first thought, oh, was this a slave uprising? And then I saw he was killed by the planters, which then led me down this rabbit hole, which led me to find this article and basically lose my mind. I was like running around the office trying to tell it to people. When I got to the part about them um, cutting off the sinning part, I took a screenshot and I sent it to my husband like, oh my gosh. But I forgot that my husband isn't a historian and I'm used to reading documents that have the long... S, so it looks like an F. So my husband responded, like, the finning part? <laughs> Did he have fins? What are you talking about? But yes, this is just such an incredibly juicy article, and it was just so satisfying to read that I just got a huge kick out of it. Having found this article, I was, I really wanted to believe everything that was written in here because it's so juicy and fascinating and Interesting, but we have to talk for a minute about primary sources. <laughs> it's really tempting to take this article at face value. It covers a lot of facts. It backs up a lot of things we know about Daniel Park. A lot of times, you find something, you're like, "Oh, this is a, some. This is from 1710. This is in a, This is a primary source. This must be correct." But that's not necessarily true. Just because something was written contemporaneously to an event doesn't make it a perfect primary source. This was actually published in a political pamphlet. Called The Political State of Great Britain, which was written, edited, and published by a man named Abel Boyer. Boyer was an English author, he was a historian, he was a journalist, and a propagandist. Interesting side note, at the time this pamphlet was published, he was in a print war with Jonathan Swift, the guy who wrote Gulliver's Travels and A Modest Proposal. So those two hated each other, and Swift had actually charged him with seditious libel at the time this came out. So I am not an expert on this period of politics. I am sure there's somebody out there who could go into wonderful detail about all of this, but what I can say is that Boyer was a Whig and his pamphlet, The Political State of Great Britain, it was written sort of as a propaganda for the Whigs. That doesn't mean that he's completely lying. That doesn't mean this is completely fake news, just that he has a point that he is trying to make. Now, from what we know from corroborating sources, Daniel Park was kind of a jerk. You can see that from the treatment of his wife. You can see that from the the consistency with which Daniel Park is sort of run out of positions of power is enough to make the argument that this was a difficult person to deal with. But if you look at the article itself, he's trying to make a point about government. He's writing during the Enlightenment at a time period where the idea that you only governed by the consent of the governed is something that is beginning to appear in the public conscious. He's spinning facts that he doesn't 100% have assured in order to kind of make this argument. There's a section in the story which talks about Daniel Park defiling some marriage beds. This is one of those things that is very difficult to back up. Certainly something that you could use to get people's ire up in a propaganda pamphlet. And most of the time, it would be something that was like, well, he was accused of this, but there's nothing we can do to prove it. There is more corroborating evidence on this, though. Because, fascinatingly, Daniel Park sort of backs it up in his will. He had a very unusual will, which he did write up shortly before his death. So in his actual will, he wrote that, All the estate in these islands, both lands, houses, negroes, debts, etc., to Thomas Long Esquire and Mr. Caesar Rodney for use of Mrs. Lucy Chester, being the daughter of Mrs. Catherine Chester, though she is not yet christened. If said youngest daughter of the said Mrs. Catherine Chester lives to marry and have children, then her eldest son and heirs, made provided he calls himself by the name of Park, and said youngest daughter of Mrs. Catherine Chester to alter her name and call herself Park, and my use of coat of arms, etc., which is that of my family of the county of Essex. But if she refuse, to my godson Julius Caesar Park, then to heirs of my daughter Frances Custis, then of my daughter Lucy Bird, always to call themselves Park, etc. Now this requires a little bit of translating. I have spent a lot of time poring over this will. But what he's essentially saying is that he is leaving all of this valuable estate that he has in Antigua to the youngest daughter of a woman named Mrs. Catherine Chester. Maybe Mrs. Catherine Chester is a widow, but regardless of whether she's married and having this child or not, this is an illegitimate child because he is married to a woman in Virginia. So for him to basically say this youngest daughter of this woman is getting all of my valuable property and then to really dig in that this is his child without saying this is my daughter by making her change her last name to Park and then even when she marries her husband has to take the last name Park. So if they don't take the last name Park they don't get any of this valuable property. So if she refuses... At this point, she's so young, she hasn't even been christened yet. So this is a baby that he's leaving all of this property to. If she refuses, then it all goes to his other illegitimate child, Julius Caesar Park. And if he passes away or he refuses, then finally that profitable estate in the Leeward Islands will go to his two legitimate daughters in Virginia, Francis Custis and Lucy Bird and their heirs. And then he still adds that something... call themselves park so it's it's not clear whether he's expecting them to change their names to park as well but he definitely is very interested in making sure that the name park lives on and those of you who are familiar with martha washington's kids and grandkids may notice there's eleanor park custis elizabeth park custis they're all parks (laughs) so even for the time this is a buckwild will. <laughs> this is acknowledging an illegitimate child and then legally making it so that all of his money goes to them. And now, even again, maybe this wasn't that weird. Maybe this was something that happened all the time. It's 1710. I don't know what people were like back then. We have the responses from one of the London merchants writing about this will to John Custis. And he writes, but what shall we say to such a man who would make his bastard children so easy to have all that he had mulched together and was as ready money and tie all of his debts and legacies upon his estate in England and Virginia? So even people at the time, this was a crazy situation. So now we have a situation where William Byrd and John Custis have married women with the expectation of a handsome dowry. They are didn't go in this for love. They wanted to get all of Daniel Park's money and instead their father-in-law is killed and they are loaded with debt and barred from any of the profitable property in the islands that they were basically marrying these women for. And these marriages that they married into for money are not the happiest of marriages. We've covered birds, but next time on... Martha Washington's in-laws were finally going to get to Martha Washington's father-in-law, John Custis IV. And we're going to talk about how that marriage turned out and what effect that has on Martha Washington's prospects. Thank you very much for listening. I will have links to some of the documents, the documents I'm able to share in the show notes. And until next time, I am, as ever your most obedient and humble servant. Thank you very much.